Amen. Okay. Meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Students of God's word. Lovers of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 17. I believe, in my estimation, we pause at the appropriate place in this chapter. And I'm not going to give much of an introduction. We're going to go straight into it. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, or excuse me, chapter 17, verse 15, is where we stopped. And this is where we will continue. And if you've been with us week after week, it will be easy to follow with me. If not, let me give you a, a brief reminder of where we're at. Hushai, David's friend, is in Jerusalem. In God's perfect timing, he is brought before Absalom. Absalom strangely asks for Hushai's advice of what they should do concerning King David. Hushai gave advice, and this advice was veiled, veiled for the benefit of David. And this advice had one strategy, to cause delay in order for David to win more time with his men, in order to better be, be better prepared for the invasion of Absalom and all of Israel. And at this point, we see that God gives us a commentary that the reason why Hushai's advice was accepted was not because of his eloquence. And he was, a, a, he was a great communicator. He was rich with metaphor and how he described the situation, how to present his case. It wasn't because of his boldness. It wasn't because of his confidence. It was because of what we see here in verse 14. Verse 14, the second part. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That's why. God had determined to destroy Absalom through these means. But there's still a human element to all of this, right? And that's what we're going to see. So we get a glimpse of the heavenly perspective. Now we come back to the ground and we watch what's about to take place and how Absalom's defeat will unfold. Verse 15, we read, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have counseled. Have I counseled rather? Now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now this is interesting. Hushai's advice was received. Absalom would wait instead of pouncing upon David that very night and gather as many men as possible in order to overwhelm David with the sheer number of people on his side. And yet, though Absalom had affirmed that this was going to be the plan, Hushai still senses this urgency and sends message to David to leave as soon as possible, to flee as quickly as possible. And what's going on in Hushai's mind for him to have such urgency and there's simply one answer to that he was under the impression that at any moment Absalom can change his mind that in the same way he was willing to hear Ahithophel and reject his counsel and embrace Hushai's he can revert just as quickly and so with a realistic understanding of the fickleness of Absalom Hushai is concerned he sends word to David and he says as soon as you can leave Cross the border, go across the river, and hide, and prepare. Don't wait one moment, because you never know. This man is unpredictable. And you cannot assume, based on what he said, that you have the assurance of more time. You might not have more time. You have to act now. This is not something to consider further. This is something to consider immediately, and to act upon immediately. Now, if this is Hushai's heart and his urgency concerning this matter. How much more the believer with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right? When we present the truth, we must present it with urgency. Now, you heard last week when we studied about the need to count the cost. And that's what Hushai did for Absalom. Hey, you better realize what you're up against here before you, you pull the trigger. And that's true as well. But there is still an urgency. And the urgency of hearing the gospel and responding to it is that you prioritize it above all else the moment you receive it, and, and you make it a matter of, this is what I have to deal with now. I'm not going to wait any longer, and, and though I do have to calculate, I'm going to calculate it right now. Not tomorrow, not the day after, not next week, because this is an urgent matter. 
And I plead with you. I mean, we're beginning this Bible study and we're in the presence of believers, but God knows your heart. If you're in this place and you have not yet responded to the truth, if you're not made a decisive decision, do so now. Do not presume based on your age, young person, based on your health, based on your plans or your dreams, that everything will come to pass and you will determine when it is that you can actually start following the Lord Jesus Christ. That is as foolish as depending upon the reliance of Absalom's word. If Absalom's attitude here reveals anything, it is that plans can change. And plans in your life can change in the blink of an eye. Overnight, everything can change. Death is not concerned about your bank account. It's not concerned about your dreams. It's not concerned about your hopes. It's not concerned about anything. And so what David needed to do for himself is what you need to ensure for yourself. That because tomorrow is not guaranteed, because things can happen tonight even, then you must be ready. And the best way to be ready is to deal with the most important thing about your existence, and that's your eternal destination. God help you if you are not sure about your eternal destination. Ensure today that you have your soul secure in the hands of God. And then you can rest assured that if death comes tomorrow or 80 years from now, you're safe in the hands of the shepherd. David needed to make a decision. And though everything seemed like it would be delayed, that was not the case. Things can change overnight. And so he would act, as we will find out. But look here in verse 17. What do we see after? So David receives this word and it's going to be received, rather, from these chain of individuals. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David. For they were not to be seen entering the city. When you read the rest of this chapter, you're going to see a lot of names. A lot of names. And these names are generally good. And when you zoom out and you consider all the actors in this scene, you get the impression that they are, they are different parts in this grand chain of a good cause. And each link, each participation is equally valuable to the significant achievement of getting this word to David. And what you kind of get out of that, the fact that there is so much detail about who is playing what role and who is helping who and how one action is affecting another action, the sense is... That there is an importance here with the function of a community. Of people rallying together for the cause of King David. In our case, it's the cause of King Jesus. And every single role, though the position is prominent or hidden, though the names are known or they are concealed, every single role is crucial to seeing the purposes of God accomplished. And the Bible is is so extremely clear concerning how the local church can succeed and advance and progress in strength, in healthy size, in effectiveness in their witness. It's no secret. Uh, you know, for those who rely on other schemes, they might receive some kind of results, but it won't be the results that the Bible promises. But if we want biblical results, and if you're a person who really cares about the glory of Jesus Christ, on the earth, being known, being shared, being declared, then you'll care about what I'm about to say. Paul the Apostle gives one major ingredient, one major ingredient to how it is we can see the function of the body of Jesus Christ at its full potential. At its full potential. And the, the secret, which is not really a secret because it's plain, is in Ephesians 4. And I want you to see it in one verse. Ephesians 4.16. This is so encouraging because it includes you. It includes you. It doesn't exclude you. It's not reserved for an elite group of people who are super spiritual. No, it includes you. If you're a born-again, blood-bought Christian, this will stir your heart. I pray it does at least. In Ephesians 4.16, we read, look what Paul says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, how does the body grow? There are two factors that need to be at play here. The first one is here. When we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
That is a call and that is an invitation for every believer who is identified as a member of the body of Jesus Christ. When every member is closely connected to other members of Jesus Christ. This genuine connection, this intimate fellowship, this consistent communion is absolutely vital. It's the bedrock, it's the foundation to seeing any church flourish. So what that means is you and I have to be extremely intentional of being immersed and involved in the lives of other like-minded believers. You have to be. And to reserve your presence from the lives of others is to be a hindrance to the growth of the church. When I'm talking about the growth, I'm not just talking about the, the numeric growth, though that is important. I'm speaking about the maturity the brightness, the power of the church requires you to be closely connected to other members. To refuse to do so again is to play a negative role. It's like one of my fingers trying to escape my hand, one of my limbs trying to escape my joints. It, it just, it's sabotaging. And you have a lot of people who think that they can be saved and yet not be connected. Th that's dangerous. But that's just the beginning because now, physically speaking, I can have all my limbs, all my organs, all my nerve endings, everything in place, right, as you see. And yet, that doesn't communicate that my body is actually healthy. I can have everything and check all the boxes of what makes me human, so to speak, at least in a complete sense, and still not know all that it is that I can know in this physical frame. Why? Because it depends upon the condition of these members that will determine who I am. At least in my function. Not in my worth or identity. I'm talking about physically. But just bear with me with this metaphor. And that's why Paul adds. What does he add here? When each part is working properly. So the first thing demands your presence. But you got to go beyond your presence. You're present here tonight. That's wonderful. You're present once a week or more at a local church. That's great. But your presence is step one. The next thing is your participation. Your active participation. A lot of people can't even, they do half a job with step one. Half a job is step one. They're barely present. They're barely here. They come once in a while and uh, they just kind of, sporadically make themselves known to ensure that, uh, okay, we meet, meet, met some kind of quota, at least we showed our face so that the pastors won't bother us. You're doing half of step one. Step one is to be consistent in the lives of other people. For them to know your name, for you to know their name, to know something about their lives. But then step two is closely connected, and that's to actively participate. And effective participation requires a humble acknowledgement of your God-given gifts and the faithful application of that gift in the place that God has positioned you within that local setting, right? And what I love about this chapter is you get that impression that people here are different, but they're working together. You heard about Zadok and Abiathar. You heard about Jonathan and Ahimahaz. You heard about this female servant who's unnamed, and that's not the only one. Scroll down here. And look at verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, so both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. Now we come to this mysterious couple that opened their home to these two messengers of David, who are outside of Jerusalem, and this couple hides the, these two messengers. That was a dangerous feat. This is life-risking stuff here. If you're caught, you're done. You're committing treason. And yet, without hesitation, they were willing to risk their lives for, for David's sake. And here's what's so beautiful about this. This is such a heroic act, and you don't even know their names. Do you? I don't know their names. We have no idea who what their names are. 
unsung heroes. Let me put it this way. These aren't the characters that you're going to find in your Sunday school curriculum of the champions of the Bible. They're, they're hidden. Right? And what's so powerful is that the Bible even tells us in the New Testament that although we might not in our flesh acknowledge these figures, we are to cherish them nonetheless. Not just looking at stories, but even in our own context. You and I are called to protect and even praise those that can be often overlooked in their service to the Lord Jesus. And Paul again uses the metaphor of the body to communicate that truth to you and I. And I want you to see that in 1 Corinthians now. We looked at Ephesians 4, but now we go to 1 Corinthians 12. And I want you to see Paul's masterful words, his presentation of how you and I are to walk in partnership with one another and resist the temptation to evaluate someone's worth like the world does. 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 22. Are you there? Verse 22. On the contrary, Paul says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Oh, Paul is a genius. Obviously, it's by the Spirit, but what a mind he had that God used. Let me summarize what he is saying here. Physically speaking... There are some of your body parts that you can live without. That's right. We, we see people living as amputees. We see people living without their sight, without their ability to hear. They're able to still function. And they, they, are, they are just as important as everybody, everybody who has the ability to do all those things, right? But there are some parts of your body that you cannot live without. They are instrumental to your survival. Without them, you cease to exist. Without them, you cannot move on. You cannot go on. And what he is saying here is that, yeah, you can afford to lose a limb, but you can't afford to lose your heart, for example. And the point is this, that there are some elements of who you are that you cannot live without. And like our hidden organs, for example, that pump life into our system, there are ministers within the local church that might not be easily perceived or as obvious in our recognition of their service that are also crucial and major contributors to the dynamic of the congregation. In the same way, again, let me say it, that there are parts of you that are hidden, that even your body communicates are so, so vital, right? You have, you have the skeletal structure that that hides and shields naturally the things that are absolutely sensitive, but not just sensitive, so needful for you in your existence. The church, the local church, has members within that are often overlooked, not seen, and yet are needed in order for that church to thrive and survive. And Paul, by the Spirit, is trying to encourage those in here who might function in a role that week after week is, is behind the veil, behind the curtain, not on the platform, and yet, and yet is absolutely special, not just in the sight of God, but in the very practical means of how the church moves forward as a church. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Even how we clothe ourselves, right? Paul's trying to say, the things that you cover with your clothes, my face is exposed, my hands are exposed. And though they might be seen, there are parts of you that, that receive greater protection, greater modesty. And what he's trying to communicate is, you out there in the churches, who might not be constantly seen, who might not be on the YouTube live stream, who might have people walk over you and walk by you and don't understand the vein that you are, the nerve that you are in the church, be encouraged. God values you. And he wants the church to see what God sees as well. So it's not just for us to, oh, that's just the case, you know, there are people in the background, oh, yeah, they're great. No, he wants you to absolutely feel in your heart. We can't do this ministry without some of you in this place. We can't preach, we can't sing, we can't share without some of you here where nobody will ever know your name on the earth. 
But God does. And God will reward you. And God cherishes you. And he prizes you. And he values you. Even when others in the same church don't. I love these hidden characters. Such members may not hold offices or titles, but they are worthy of our protection. They are worthy of our praise. In the same way, our natural frame conceals and shields those vital parts of who we are. Let's here look at verse 18 again. So you have this, this group of people working together. And then in verse 18, unfortunately, there is a young man who saw and told Absalom about this female servant meeting with these two spies that belonged to David. He rushes to the king, and he reveals the suspicious activity. And what's significant here is that these two, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, they, they make a detour and they hide. And where do they hide of all places? At a home that is located in Bahurim. You have to have your rear view mirrors when you read the Bible. And you have to ask yourself from time to time, why is that important? And the reason why it's important is when you consider the close context. Because you've read this word before. You've seen this place mentioned before. And I'm going to invite you to answer it. Does anybody here know the last time we have read of Bahurim? Any idea? Yes. Very good. Did you hear him? That is where Shemai was located. You remember Shemai, right? If you don't, come here to chapter 16, verse 5. In 2 Samuel 16, 5, we read, When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gira, and as he came, he cursed continually. When we studied that, we came to the conclusion that Bahurim was a region that was filled with strong Saul supporters. And we see that with Shemai, obviously, with his colorful language. But we also see that David received help from the very same place. Think about it. This is, the, this is an encouragement by making this connection. From the very same place that David was assaulted came vital assistance. God is always ready to raise up support in the most unlikely times and from the most unexpected places. That's the point. And there are so many truths that can support that argument. One of my favorite Proverbs in the, New, in the, in the book of Proverbs, rather, is Proverbs 16.7. In Proverbs 16.7 we read, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Now consider that for a moment. If you want to know how God can raise up support from the most unlikely places and the most unexpected times, then all you have to do is set yourself to live in a way in which you please God. And on that path of pleasing the Lord consciously with your heart, with your affections, from time to time in God's perfect sovereignty, He can raise up even your enemies, your foes to be your friends. Now that proverb doesn't assure us that all your enemies will, will end up being your friends. Some of the greatest men and women of God have received the sword from their enemies and, and face death because of their enemies, the enemies of the truth. But what it does mean is that God can do it. God is able to do it. And who does God do it for? Those who please Him. Those who seek to please Him. He can transform a heart, change a perspective. He can subdue even a reluctant individual. The most envious, unpleasant individuals that you might know in the hands of God can become some of your strongest aid as you seek to serve God. Saying, how does that work? I can tell you some stories you might not believe me. It's incredible how people can support financially in a way that even believers don't. And those people that support don't even believe the truth that you're preaching. It's amazing how you have some people who can somehow come to your aid when in fact everything naturally speaking 
doesn't make sense for them to do so. There's so many testimonies of this, and I'm not going to take the time to share those. This proverb promises that in some cases, God can do supernatural things even with the enemies of the God-fearing. And so you see, out of the place of Bahurim, you have a couple that are willing to serve David's cause. But then we read on and we see what, what happens exactly. Verse 19, And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where's Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water, and when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Does this look familiar? Does this look familiar to anybody here? I heard somebody say it. Who? Rahab. Didn't Rahab do something very, very similar? Two spies came to her from Israel. She hid them. When the men who were after these spies came and asked, she misdirected them. This is, this is like almost a mirrored picture of what took place in Joshua chapter 2. And we don't want to read too much into it, but I think to some degree, this parallel activity is meant to give us a hint, a little nudge. And the nudge is this, that the fate of Absalom will be very similar to that of Jericho. You know, Absalom had everything going for him at this point. He had the support of the nation. He had a strong army. He had charm. He had personality. He had a strategy. But Absalom was not fighting against a man. He was fighting against God. And no matter what you have in your arsenal, no matter what kind of personality you have, if you're going to fight against God, it's always a losing battle. Always. And so in the same way that God brought down the walls of Jericho, God is about to bring down the pride of this man and crush him. And the people of God and the purposes of God will prevail, no matter how high, how strong the opposition may be. That is what we're prepared to see. That is what God's providence and the evidence of his providence is, is encouraging us to see, to see unfold. But listen, you've heard about God's providence a thousand times during this Bible study. If you've been with us for years, God's providence has been mentioned so many times. And why is that? It's not because it's my, one of my favorite doctrines, though it is. It's because the Bible is absolutely blanketed with God's providential work at different points in history. He's always at work in hidden ways. And through natural means, he is performing supernatural accomplishments. And every time we're confronted with that, we're supposed to take courage, right? And not just take courage, we're also supposed to remember that though God is sovereign, you and I have a human responsibility in all of this. So yeah, God will provide you an income. But guess what? you got to apply for jobs, okay? you got to apply. And God will protect you. But it's a good idea to wear your seatbelt. And God can solve relational problems, but sometimes that's going to require you to have awkward conversations to confront somebody who's in the wrong for him to do that, right? God can do amazing things, but it doesn't mean we sit back and watch him do it in the name of prayer. Prayer is good, but it doesn't negate participation. Providence is awesome, but God works through obedience, not through lazy observation. And so we see God's providence at work here. We see something so special. And that David here receives the news finally, and what does he do? Verse 21. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Rise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Okay. We read in verse 14 that it was purposed that Ahithophel's counsel would be defeated so that Absalom would be destroyed. But what did David do? He got up and he left. He still did something. Okay? God is very practical. He's very realistic. And he asks us to do what seems the most reasonable in your situation, and then he'll come with the supernatural. It's just important to know because you have people in the name of faith who do crazy things, Right? They, they don't see a doctor or get medication because they think that God will intervene. God can intervene and he can heal you. But the same Paul who laid hands on people and saw them recover also told his son, Timothy, drink some wine for your belly. So I, I, that, might, that might have went over your head, but there are some people who really, really, really need that. God is powerful. He is providential. But he wants us to be practical. David got up and he left. 
Now, this is, this is suspenseful, right? We see this intensifying moment where the brewing tension is now coming to a boiling point. Absalom and David are about to face off, father and son, in a very heartbreaking situation. But the Spirit of God suspends this moment and turns our attention away from Absalom, away from David, and this quick-paced scene, and brings us now to Ahithophel again. And what you're about to read is a very dark verse. Very dark, and for some people in here, it might hit home more than the next. But it's important to deal with. And it's found in verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So Ahithophel, after his counsel was rejected, goes home, sets his house in order, and hangs himself. My question is why? A couple of people came up to me last Friday, and we talked about this briefly, and I told them you have to wait till next Friday in order to get your answer. But I'm curious to know your thoughts. Why did Ahithophel do this? This is a dramatic, this is drastic, this is permanent. There's nothing more permanent than this that you can do in life. But why did he do this? Any idea? Yes. Okay, so there might be this idea of his rejection, right? His plan, his desire was shot down, and his ego was so affected that he couldn't even live another day. And that is the common view of this. And though that can be some part in it, I think there's something deeper going on here. Ahithophel had a smart mind. Ahithophel knew how to interpret the future in some sense. And that's because, yes, you have something? That's right. He doesn't have a future. And why is that? Because he believed what Absalom could not see. That if Hushai's advice was received, then it would fail. He knew what Hushai said would not bring success for Absalom. He knew that it would actually seal Absalom's death, and not just Absalom's death, but if David gains the victory and comes back for the throne, I'm going to be killed as well. And so what Ahithophel is thinking is, I'm finished. This is done. I, I rebelled against him. He's definitely going to win if they're going to implement Hushai's plan. So I'd rather kill myself than die by the hands of the one that I hate with all my heart. Bitterness is scary stuff, man. Hatred is scary stuff. Hatred will do things to you, not to the person that you hate. Hatred will destroy you more than the person that you want to see destroyed. And this man is willing to hang himself, and he's a very strong picture of a Judas who betrayed the son of David. And once he realized the regret of his decision, didn't repent, neither does Ahithophel, but he destroys himself out of the sorrow. And Ahithophel is a very strong picture of Judas, actually. Where was David found when the news of Ahithophel's betrayal came to him? Does anybody remember In case you don't, go to 2 Samuel 15. And look at verse 30. Actually, look at verse 31, then look at verse 30. And it was told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. But when was that told? Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of where? The Mount of Olives. Yeah. Where did Judas plant his lips on that precious face of the Savior? The very same mount. And so you see here a very eerie mirroring of Judas's ways. And it's very difficult to move on from this verse without addressing, at least to some level, the issue of suicide. You have believers who feel differently about it, who have different theological bents on it. You have some who think that suicide is the unforgivable sin. 
You have others who believe that uh, it is possible for a believer to undergo such dark moments in their lives that they are willing to entertain such a temptation and even execute that temptation and still be received into eternal life because of their confession of faith. It's difficult because we don't have a clear, systematized understanding of what happens with that particular sin. I am under the persuasion that it is absolutely possible for a genuine, born-again believer to be harassed by the lies of Satan and to be agitated by the cowardice of the flesh to commit self-murder. Absolutely it's possible. But at the same time, if I was sitting before somebody who was genuinely considering committing such an act against themselves, this is me, I would look at them and after different conversations come to the point of challenging them to examine the sincerity of their faith. Again, not because a Christian cannot stoop to such hopelessness. That is absolutely possible. But for a believer to come to a point where they're willing to cross that line, I would want to, in a loving way, call them to say, brother, you need to, or sister, you need to examine yourself very carefully. Why is that? Because the Bible defines a Christian with many beautiful things. And one of the most precious aspects of a believer is that they are filled with an otherworldly, life-giving hope. A hope so powerful that it can enable that person to endure all sorts of pain, all sorts of loss, or all sorts of defeat, and all sorts of suffering of various kinds. It's a hope that energizes you. It doesn't eliminate the dark cloud that can hover over your mind and your heart, but it is a hope that can help you push through and make it to the other side and live to tell about how the Lord, though you, dis though you despaired of life itself, you relied on God and God brought you through. That kind of a hope. And so because we are described with that hope, we have triumph. We have triumph. And from there, I would also say, and I also believe that suicide is one of the most defying statements of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? When you become a Christian, what happens? When you become a believer, you put your life completely over to the will and the control of God. And to take my own life would to say to God that the prerogative that exclusively belongs to you, I now assume for myself. I want to determine my fate. I, I don't, I'm not leaving it up to you to determine what happens with my days, what happens with my future, what happens with my lot. I will determine when I am unsatisfied enough to press the eject button and to sabotage what you might have had for my life. Right? That might sound harsh, that might sound severe, but this is emergency protocol stuff, right? And one person said it very powerfully in referencing Christians that they could not imagine standing before Jesus Christ after committing self-murder. And I would agree with that. So that is what I would say to somebody who would entertain it for themselves, but I would have a completely different tone for somebody who might have had a loved one that has done it. And, and all the complicated ideas behind it and the what-ifs, that's a different conversation for a different time. But let me say this before we move on from this place. There's so much more I can say about that. And I know that it might be an incomplete kind of address concerning such a vast subject, but if you're a person today who feels that tendency. Remember who you are in Christ Jesus. Remember what the Holy Spirit has deposited in you. Remember what it means to have Jesus Christ Lord of your life. And understand that no matter how daunting it may seem, no matter how worrisome, no matter how fearful tomorrow might be, or how overwhelming today might be, 
He has you in his hand. He will bring you through. He will perfect the work that he started in you. And Satan would love to try to obstruct what God has been working on since you confessed him as Lord. And so sometimes when it comes to those who are in a dark place, we have to, we have to just remind them of their identity. And I get it. There are chemical things that go on and sometimes there are neurological issues. Again, it's a vast subject. But let me just speak plainly and speak, speak straight. God has a purpose for you still. And that very temptation should be indicative that you have absolute value and Satan doesn't want to see you fulfill it. So this man, he hangs himself. And, and more than hanging himself, there's something worth our acknowledgement. And it's the contradiction of his actions. What does he do before he hangs himself? He sets his house in order. So he comes home and he puts his affairs in place. And would we say that's a wise thing? Absolutely it's a wise thing. We should have our order. We should have plans. We should have things put in place so that when we do depart from this life, we're not leaving ramifications and issues for our loved ones to deal with that could have been better handled by us, right? So that's smart. And yet, with this wisdom, we see a collision of foolishness in the very same breath. He sets his house in order, then he hangs himself. Like, what are you doing? And this is an extreme example, is it not? But listen, the same contradiction is being lived out all around us. Absolutely it is. In what way? How many people are excellent at business, but their families are being destroyed at the same time? Huh? How many people invest in their bodies, and yet their souls are deteriorating? How many are so consumed day after day, the first thing when they wake up, the last thing they do when they go to bed, their bank account, their stocks, their investments, and yet there is not one passing thought about what will happen when they stand before God. It's happening all around us, people. And it might not be physical suicide, but it's spiritual suicide. There is spiritual suicide happening every single moment of every single day. People who might be very prudent and smart in some areas, but in the areas where it matters the most, they're absolutely idiotic and foolish. Please don't be that person. P please don't be really smart in this life, but very stupid with your soul. Please don't be so concerned with the temporal and so quick to dismiss the eternal. That is exactly what Ahithophel is doing. He's willing to put so much effort and time and energy for that which matters in this life alone. But when it came to his eternal state, he was willing to throw it away. And yet people are doing that day after day. Verse 24. Then David came to Mahanim. And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishlamite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zuriah, Joab's mother. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It's only to add to this family feud. You have more family members involved in this than you thought at first. But then we read on, And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now look at this in verse 27. When David came to Machanaim, this is twice in a very short amount of time we have this name brought forward to us. Does anybody remember the first time it is mentioned in all of the Bible? No, not when he's fleeing from Saul. Good guess though. It's much earlier in the Old Testament than that. When was the first time the place, Mahanaim, Mahanaim, Did you whisper it? Earlier. But that's a good guess too. That's another strong guess. Even earlier than Joshua. I'm patient. I can wait. 
I'll give you more time to scroll through your scrolls. When is the first time? Joshua, you have any idea? No? Oh, okay, I'll tell you. No guesses? Somebody said Genesis. I'm not going to ask how you found out. Okay, it's good. Genesis where? Okay, so let's just go to that together, shall we? Genesis chapter 32. It's with Jacob. Jacob was ready to meet with his brother Esau. And on his way, we read something in the first two verses of Genesis chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now you see what's happening here? Jacob is obviously nervous for this long-awaited encounter with his brother Esau. The last that he heard about Esau is that he wanted to kill him. And you've heard me say this more than once, that his mother promised him, I'll send you back from your uncles once his anger subsides. And she never does, which implies that he was still angry. Nothing had changed with Esau's feelings towards his brother. And now he knows that he has to meet with him. And so he meets with him, and on his way to meet him, God knows, and God knew, this man Jacob needs some encouragement. And so the way he encourages and strengthens his faith is that he opens his eyes to see a host of angels in this region. And that revelation was so profound to him that he names that location Mahanim, which means two camps. In other words, what Jacob learned was, I'm not alone here. I'm not by myself. I'm not abandoned. I'm not going to confront this issue apart from God's assisting presence he is with me. And he has sent forth angels to show that he is with me. That's what this place meant. That is the very DNA of Mahanaim. And now you have David. David ready to be encountered by his son. He does not have the best intentions for him. And yet though David arrives to this place, David does not have the same experience that Jacob does. But he still does have an experience. And the experience is this. Angels didn't show up, but godly people did. A set of godly people came to him at Mahanaim. And the way they acted, the way they assisted, the way they came to his support made it seem as though they did come from heaven. Let me show that to you here. Look at verse 27. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobis, the son of Nachash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogilim, brought beds, basins, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So you have David experiencing something so precious, not at the hands of angels, but at the hands of real-life people. And I thought, who are these guys? Because they're, they're not very familiar to us. I just want us to look at a couple of them. Would you bear with me? Because this will hopefully bless you. Look at the first person mentioned. Shobi, the son of Nachash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites. Is that a Jew? Is that an Israelite? No. And more than not just an Israelite, did David have history with the Ammonites? Answer, yes. And when you realize that who Shobi is, it's even more profound. He is who? The son of Nahash. And who is Nahash? At one point he was the king of the Ammonites. Do you remember that? You remember the story in our, in our time together on a Friday night where David heard of the death of Nahash and there was a man who took his place in 2 Samuel 10. It was the son of Nahash. And so he sends messengers to bring consolation and comfort and this man was told, 
uh, they're actually here to spy. Don't let them get away with this. And so he cuts half their beard, and he strips them of their clothes, and he sends them back. Do you remember that? And then it started a war. This Shobi is the son of that same king who died and the brother of the one who did that to David's men. Think about that. That's significant. And it should teach you many things. And here's one thing it should teach you, that you and I should be very slow to assume the character of someone based on the actions of those that they are helplessly associated with. And you and I should know that though there are some who does not respond to our mercy with mercy, kindness with kindness, there are who will. Shobi did. When he realized the kind of man David was, he came at a favorable time and showed love and compassion, though he was an enemy. And that makes me very happy to know that I can look out in a world that, where there are enemies of God, enemies of Christ, and yet there are people who still belong to him to some regard. But look at Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. Who is he? This is not the first time he's brought to us in the scriptures. Any idea of who he is? Shobi was the brother of Hanun who replaced his father. Machir, on the other hand, was somebody that we have heard of before. Do you remember when David asked about any of descendants from Saul who were left? Ziba told them that there was one. And when David asked where he was, Mephibosheth, the answer is in 2 Samuel 9. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel 9, verse 4. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. So Machir, the last time you've heard of him was that he was taking care of a paralyzed man and his family. He opened his home to him. And he had him stay as long as he needed to stay. And eventually he was summoned to promotion because of the kindness of David. And now the next time you see Machir, he realizes that David is in trouble. David is in need. And so he comes to David's aid. You know what I get from this guy? This guy really enjoys taking care of people. He takes deep delight in finding individuals that are struggling and that are in need. And that cannot lift themselves up. And he, he comes as soon as he can, to make a way for them. You know, I was looking at Machir briefly this afternoon, and I thought to myself, this is probably one of the closest illustrations to the manifestations of one of the gifts of the Spirit. Not the gift of tongues, not the gift of healing, not the gift of prophecy, the gift that Romans 12 tells us about of mercy. The gift of mercy. Mercy is a supernatural gift, at least to some. Most of us here understand that mercy, and I hope all of us understand that mercy is, is a Christian attitude. We all should have mercy. But there's a gift of mercy. And the gift of mercy is this special intuition, this sensitivity, this deep desire and delight in collecting your resources and your time to help those that others might neglect or overlook. You have this magnetic ability and discernment to look and find people and you take a special delight in pouring into them and it's a blessing for you to help whereas for others it might be a blessing but it's also a burden. That's not for the person who has the gift of mercy. It's like an absolute joy to step in and to do what others might not want to do. So if you ever want an, an Old Testament picture of what the gift of mercy looks like, Look no further than Mahir. And if you're a person in this place that feels the same way of the way I just described, you might have the gift of mercy. The Holy Spirit might have put that in your life, in your heart. And for any church or any person to be connected to another who has the gift of mercy, they're like angels sent from heaven, man. They're so precious. And this man indeed was a special person to David. You want to know who real friends are? Get in trouble and see who calls. You want to know who real friends are? When you have nothing to offer them, and yet they're willing to offer themselves. That's who a real friend is. And instead of identifying who that person might be, I mean, it's good to thank them and praise God for them. Be that person. Right? 
A lot of people want the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not against the gifts of the Spirit. But what about those gifts like mercy? How many people pray for that one? I'm not sure many do. But all like those members that are not often seen, that are hidden. Mercy, mercy, so needed in a day of so much unforgiveness and coldness. And there's another guy here. Did you see his name? Kind of difficult to pronounce his name. Barzillai. We're going to deal with him later. And Pastor Daniel might correct me on how I'm saying these names after the Bible study. <laughs> I thought so. So we see here another character, and he's going he's gonna to come back to us in a couple of chapters. But I want to end this Bible study with a quote. Sometimes I do that. The quote is from no other than my good friend, Spurgeon. We'll talk about Berzai in another time. And let me end from a quote with this man, Prince of Preachers, who makes a beautiful illustration and comment about the connection of Mahanim between Jacob and David. And it is this, quote, Spurgeon said, I infer from this that if at any time a servant of God is marching onward in his master's work and he needs assistance of any sort, he need not trouble about it but rest in the Lord. For succor and help will surely come, if not from the angels above, yet from the church below. And Spurgeon, as only Spurgeon can, made the wonderful application with the idea of Manahim from Jacob to David by mentioning how our help is either invisible or visible either comes from supernatural beings sent from God that you may not be able to perceive like Jacob did, but can trust by faith that they are sent to administer aid to those who are saved or from those that you can see and perceive and walk by day by day. And the encouragement here is you can expect that from God. In the same way Jacob did, in the same way David did, we are continually walking under a mahanaim, we're continually walking. It's not just one area. It's a lifestyle. We are always walking with two camps. And you and I should be blessed by that. To know that God is always with us. And I want to bless God with you tonight for this Bible study. And I'm excited to have the conversations afterwards with you. But until then, let's pray and pour out our hearts before the Lord of glory. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels, they bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. Does anybody know that song? Yeah, it's a classic. Lord, we thank you by telling you what a mighty God we serve. Lord, we trust that through the through the delivery of this study, though imperfect, and even through may, maybe our distracted hearts, that your word will not return void. Oh God, your word is profound. We are moved by it each time it is expounded to us. Words can't express what you mean to us. Help us believe that the God of David, the God of Jacob, is our God. Lord, in this place, we often feel the temptation to rush. But teach us again the delight of sitting at your feet and simply adoring you for who you are. Lord, There is none like you. Forgive us for our inconsistencies. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for maybe looking at the things that we shouldn't be looking at and listening to the voices we shouldn't be listening to. But we praise you that we can come here week after week and believe that you are gracious enough to speak to our hearts 
and to realign our thinking and our affections to where they belong. Lord, I, I don't know what some here might be dealing with. You know. It might be dark. It might be devilish. But it is not beyond the hope that you have for those who are yours. We pray that hope will swallow up all despair, all fear, all lies. And that every person who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ would be anchored with the truth that you have a purpose for their tomorrows. And even in their pain, there is purpose. And that even though life has not played out the way they thought, you have a better way and you have a better script for our sanctification. And Lord, we pray for those who might feel as though their service to God is not significant or meaningful. And they come week after week and they do things that seems menial. Lord, we ask that they would realize the preciousness of who they are in you. We pray that they would realize through this brief mentions that you have actually set them up to be the most treasured and prized of your church. And Lord, with everything that was said in between and passing, we trust that you've spoken to us. Now we speak to you again in song and give you glory and honor and thanks. In the precious name of the living Christ, we pray, amen and amen. Church, let's stand and worship God together.